Mark chapter nine is where we are. Mark chapter nine, verses 14 through 27, is we're talking about endurance, perseverance, steadfastness, all those qualities that come up over and over again in scripture. We talked a couple weeks ago about how we see so many people dropping out of church life. It's just, they just don't have time for it in their schedules, or maybe they've experienced something that makes them walk away, and how we need grit to stick with the body of Christ, because that's our calling. Last week, we talked about how we need grit in order to do what the word of God says and rejoice even when we're struggling. And today we're going to talk about something else, uh, how we can go on when we can't see God. Now, my daughter, whose birthday was yesterday, uh, she and I are travel buddies because uh, my wife and my son don't really enjoy sitting in a car a long time. They're willing to travel once in a while, but they're more homebodies and certainly don't like long car trips. And my, my daughter and I, we love just hit the open road together and, uh, and, and see new places, which means we share hotel rooms. And so she told me at one point on one of our trips, she said, you know, dad, every time we're in a hotel, every night you get up at least once and you run into something. At some point, you know, and maybe I'll trip over my shoes that I left in the floor, or maybe I, I forgot to push the, the chair in under the desk and I, I run into that. Or sometimes, and this, is, this has really happened, I will miss the door to the bathroom and just run smack into the wall. Because it's dark, right? And it's an unfamiliar room. Well, the thing is, she's gotten so used to that, she's tuned to it, so to speak. So now whenever I get up, she wakes up and she waits for it. She's like, wait for it, wait for it. Oof. Okay, there it happened. Um, So, and then that makes her laugh and then she can't get back to sleep. So I've tried to start these new habits. Like I, I make a mental map uh, of the room before I turn off the lights and maybe I'll remember it and I try to clear a path so that I have a straight shot to where I'm going. Uh, but I, I talked to somebody after the second service and they said they had a buddy that actually got up in the middle of the night and, and went through what they thought was the bathroom door and then the door clicked shut behind them and they were in the hallway, you know, in, in their fruit of the looms. In the, in the, you know, so yeah, bad news. That hasn't happened to me yet. If it does, I can promise you, you won't know because I won't tell you. So... I tell you all that to say this. In Christian life, in American Christianity, we do a good job of certain things. One of the the things I think we do well is evangelizing our children. I think we do a good job of telling kids the gospel. We don't do a good job of telling them how to walk in the dark. And here's what I mean by that. So when you just saw these families come up with their kids and they're beautiful and, and we know that those parents want to do their best to pass their faith along to their children. And our job as a church, and I, I say our because you're included, our job as a church is to partner with them and just reinforce the things they're teaching at home and to help them come to know Christ. And so like VBS is a time when kids, a lot of kids accept Christ as their savior. Some of them, they're 12, some of them are eight, so you all, all ages in between. And, and so I get to share the gospel. All the ministers do it in, in different class groups. And so here's the way I share the gospel with, with kids that age. I'll say, imagine you've had a really bad school year. You just didn't turn in your homework. You didn't listen to your teacher. You kept getting in trouble. And you know, as May comes up, you know that you're going to get all Fs on all your, on all your classes. Your report card's going to be terrible. But there's a girl in your class that has been, had perfect attendance, and she listens to everything the teacher says, and she always does what's right, and she always turns in her homework, and she get, makes hundreds on all her tests, and she comes to you, and she says, listen, I, I know you've had a bad year, and I know, I know you're dreading what's going to happen, but how about 
you and I just trade. When the report card comes out, why don't you take my A's and I'll take your F's, and that way you won't get punished and you'll have a new chance. And I tell the kids, that's what Jesus has done for us because he lived the perfect life. He never sinned. You and I have all sinned. And and he has traded places with us at the cross. He has taken the punishment for our sins so we could go free. And all we have to do is choose to receive that. And kids, sometimes they're old enough to understand, yes, I know that I've sinned and I know I need forgiveness. I know I need a savior. And that's such good news to them. And they receive Christ. Now we do that pretty well. But here's what we don't do well. We don't say to them, now from this point on, you're gonna have some really good times, but you're also gonna go through difficult times. One of the worst things we do to kids is we leave them with the false impression that because God is good and because he loves you, your life is gonna go well because you're now a Christian. Another, another mistake we make with kids is we, we make it sound like, okay, Christians are the good guys. They're the good people because they belong to God. Those non-Christians out there, they're the bad guys and you stay away from them. And that's not true and it's not biblical. And so kids grow up and and as teenagers and as young adults, they get to know non-Christians and they realize, hey, this guy's a good person. Hey, this this woman is nice and I I love her. She's she's a good person. Why did my my relatives and my friends back at home tell me they were bad? I, I don't get that. And we experience trials, we experience, as we grow up, we have, we have Christians who aren't nice to us, we have churches that aren't healthy, we, we meet pastors who aren't good people. Yes, it's possible, yes, it happens all the time. And, and it, it breaks our heart. We pray to God for something that we think is perfectly appropriate and is exactly what needs to happen and, and it doesn't happen. And, and we don't understand, it doesn't match with what we were told when we were little because no one sat down and explained to us there will be times of darkness, there will be times of disappointment and here's how to be ready. So that's what I want to do for you today. First of all, before we get into our main story for the day, I want to just run through just a quick survey of stories that should tell us, because God tells us in his word that life is not going to be easy. Think about the story of Job. Job, uh, if you don't know this story, it is not the most fun book in the Bible to read. I'll just warn you in advance. It's the story of a man who, by God's own testimony, was blameless, was the most righteous man in his territory in that time. And yet he loses everything, literally his family, his, his, his health, his, all of the wealth that he's accumulated, he's got nothing left. Him and his wife are just stuck with grief and he sits the rest of the book of Job. That's the, that's the first two chapters. The rest of the book of Job is Job sitting in a pile of ashes and praying to God and saying, why don't you come down and explain this to me? And then you read the Psalms. I don't know if you figured this out yet or not. Psalms is the longest book of the Bible. It's also the hymn book of the Bible. That's, those are the songs that the Israelites sang in worship. Jesus grew up singing these songs. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we sing songs in church and they're all happy songs. They're all songs that are intended to lift us out of our doldrums and remind us of how good God is. You read the songs that the Jews grew up singing and some of them are happy and joyful, but a lot of them aren't. A lot of them are like this one. Psalm 13 says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. 
So you can imagine as people would grow up singing those songs, it was just a, it was training them, it was preparing them for, you know, sometimes we won't be able to understand what God's up to. Sometimes we will feel like he's not there, but that's the time to trust him all the more. And then we read about Elijah. Elijah is one of my favorite characters in the Bible because he's so many things that I wish I was. He's so bold and he's so courageous and he just has no fear except this one moment in his life. Because Elijah has just done this incredible thing. He's challenged, he's literally challenged an entire religion to a steel cage death match on top of Mount Carmel. So all the prophets of the false god Baal meet up with Elijah and, and in front of all of Israel, they see that Yahweh is God and Baal is nothing. And so Elijah is on this incredible spiritual high and right then, the, king, the queen of the nation, Jezebel, uh, puts out a hit on Elijah's life. Says, okay, he's going to die. And Elijah expects the people, after just being converted to worshiping Yahweh, essentially, he expects them to rise up and say, no, you're not going to kill the man who led us to the Lord. But no one lifts a finger. No one speaks up. And he's so depressed, he runs to the furthest southern area of Israel, lays down under a broom tree and says, okay, God, just kill me. I'm not fit to live anymore. That's the height of depression. Think about Mary. We think about Mary at Christmas time, and, and it's, those are happy stories. Think about this little teenager, and Gabriel shows up and says, hail, oh, most favored of women, and you're going to give birth to the Messiah. And we think, wow, what a lucky, what a lucky girl she is. But read the rest of her story, and you see that her life got harder after that. First of all, she is an unwed mother in a society that does not look kindly upon that, and then she gives birth far from home. And then when the child is, is just a tiny one, she has to flee to Africa, to, to Egypt, just to save the child's life because the king of their nation wants her child dead. She lives in poverty, and then the, the boy goes away when he's about 30 and leaves her, and for years she hears about how he's being rejected by the leaders of the people, and then she gets to show up and watch him die. Think about John the Baptist, who, like Elijah, was a man of incredible courage and boldness, and just like Elijah, that boldness got him in trouble. He ends up beheaded for speaking against the king, and while he's waiting for execution in prison, he sends word to Jesus and says, are you the one? Are you really the one we should be looking for? Or is there someone else? Which is just unbelievable because John was the very first person to, to, on earth to know who Jesus was and to acknowledge him for who he was. And he's been preaching and proclaiming this is the one all along. But here at the very end, he starts to feel doubts. Think about the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, this man who the greatest conversion story anybody's ever written, and yet he becomes this great apostle, but his life is difficult as he's, he, he loses the respect of everyone who once sang his praises. He's rejected by, the, by his own nation. He's beaten, he's jailed, he's chased, he's betrayed over and over again. And at one point when he gets this, what we assume to be a physical ailment, he calls it his thorn in the flesh, and he prays to God and says, Lord, take this away. And you would think that an apostle of all people, especially Paul, the guy who wrote half the New Testament, you would think that he could get his prayer answered, right? And God says, no, no, my grace is enough for you. Your power is made perfect. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So you're just going to have to trust me. And I tell you all of that to say the Bible is just preparing us and is saying there will be times of darkness. There will be times when you can't figure out what I'm up to or why this is happening. You need to learn to walk in the dark. You need to learn to trust me. 
So here's the story I want us to look at, and it's from Mark chapter nine. The the context here is Jesus has just been up on top of a high mountain. He and Peter and James and John, the other nine are down at the foot of the mountain, and and he went up there to have a meeting with the Lord, essentially uh, with his father, and God, God the Father sends down Moses and Elijah to meet with Jesus on top of that mountain, and Jesus is transfigured into uh, a form so bright no one can even look at him, And, and you talk about a spiritual high, and you want to stay there, but you can't. No one gets to live on the mountaintop. That, that comes in the next life with, with Christ. Life is lived in the valley. And so as Jesus gets down to the valley, here's what he finds. Chapter 9, verse 14 says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So there's there's three habits in this I want us to form and work on. That's what we're going to need to be able to walk in the dark. And the first one is learn to forgive Jesus for the failures of his people. I know that's an unusual sentence, so let me explain what I mean. So think about this father who brings his boy to Jesus. He was taking a real risk in doing that. And here's what I mean by that. In that stage, the the leaders of, of Judaism had already declared that anybody who follows Jesus is rejected. They, they are ineligible. They can't go to the synagogue anymore, which means more than just we can't go and worship on the Sabbath. It means this man's sons, daughters, if he has any, when they grow up, they can't marry decent Jewish families. They can't, they can't marry anybody who comes from a well-standing family because you've been rejected. It means his business is probably finished. It means no one's going to hire him. No one's going to buy things from him. And yet this is how desperate he was. All of you who are parents, you know the feeling. You know the feeling that says, my child is sick and I will do anything. I will, I will cut off an arm. I will mortgage my house. I will do anything, whatever it takes to make this child well. That's what this man was going through. So imagine his disappointment when he takes this big risk, when he walks all these miles with this boy and no telling how many seizures he has along the way to get to Jesus. And when he gets there, there's no Jesus. Jesus is up on a mountain. There's just the nine disciples on the ground. And I'm sure they told him, oh, we've done it lots of times, but it doesn't work. No matter how often they, how many times they pray or, or how many things they say, nothing works and the boy is still sick. Imagine his disappointment. And some of you know that disappointment. You know how the people of God can let you down sometimes. You know, I've talked about how precious the church is and how much I love this church, but the church can hurt you. And some of you know that hurt. Some of you have experienced that hurt. You've run into Christians who aren't good people. You've you've been in churches that aren't healthy places. You've met pastors who don't deserve that title, who reveal themselves to be wolves in sheep's clothing, or or just men who've gone off track. It happens. I I wish that it didn't, but it does. And, and, And here's the thing. I'm not excusing the bad behavior of Christians because here's what you notice in the story, and I hope this encourages you if you're one of those people who've experienced church hurt. 
When Jesus gets down from the mountain and the father tells him, listen, these guys let me down. Jesus is angry at his disciples. He says, how long do I have to be with you guys? How, how, many, how many more times do I have to put up with you? Jesus has lost his patience with his own disciples. I want you to understand that when you're hurt by someone who bears the name of Jesus, you may be angry. You're not as angry as the Lord is. If you go to a church and the church hurts you, you may be hurt. You're not as wounded as the Lord is. If you see a pastor who disgraces the name of Jesus, you know who he's going to have to stand in front of someday? The one whose name he's been defiling. So don't think you're alone because you're not. Just understand something. The failures of God's people doesn't say anything about who Jesus is. Imagine you took uh, someone who grew up in the jungle or uh, the desert and they've never seen modern technology and you brought them here and you wanted to show them how much better life is here. And so you took them to a modern hospital and you introduced them to doctors and you showed them the instruments and you let them watch some procedures and talk to patients. And afterwards you say, well, what do you think? And they say, well, I'm not gonna trust modern medicine. There's nobody but sick people in there. I mean, this is the, this is the pinnacle of your, your civilization and yet there's nothing but people who are sick and some of them are dying. Why would I trust you? And that's the way I think a lot of us, the mistake a lot of us make with the church. We say, well, I went to church and it was full of sinners. Well, of course, that's what a church is for. Churches are not museums for saints. They're hospitals for sinners. And yes, we should be getting better. We should be growing in Christ. As we grow, we should grow in qualities like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. But we're not there yet. We're patients in this hospital. You look around this room and you may, be, you may see people who've been in this church or another church for decades. They're still sinners. Saved by grace, on their way to becoming like Jesus, but not there yet. So don't be surprised when, you, you, when you're disappointed in your pastor, in your life group leader, in a fellow church member. It will happen. Learn to forgive not just that person, but forgive the Lord. It's not his fault. He's just as angry as you are, if not more. There's a second thing we need in order to walk in the dark. And look at verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Now imagine, imagine what happens next. Listen to this sentence this, this father's gonna say to Jesus. And imagine being this dad. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. So the second habit I think we need, we need to learn to honestly ask God for help. Now, I know probably everybody here would say, well, I pray, I pray all the time. But let me show you what I mean. The prayer in verse 24 may be my favorite prayer in the whole Bible. And that's saying something. And we're not taught to pray like this father prays because I think unintentionally we get the idea that if God is a good father and he has all things, then he'll give us all things. Then he'll give us whatever we ask for. Let me ask you something. It, how many of you would say I had a really good father or a really good parents growing up, right? Did your parents give you everything you asked for? 
Yeah, I see Bentley shaking his head left and right. That's right. Yeah, he, good parents do not give their kids everything they ask for. If you are a parent and you give your child everything you ask for, please leave the country. Leave, go, take them with you somewhere far, far away because that kid is going to grow up terrible. Because children do not know what is best for them. That's your job as a parent. And see, the great thing about God is he answers every prayer we pray. But he always answers it the way we would pray if we knew what he knows. We can count on him for that. There's a second thing about this prayer that we're not trained for, and that is that aspect that says, help my unbelief. We pray for the things we want, the things that we lack, the things that we think we need, and that's good. We should. But how many of us pray that God would change us? We would change from the inside out, that we would become new people, that we'd become more like him. How many of us come to him and say, okay, Lord, here's where I'm falling short. I need your help. See, instead, I think our problem is we unintentionally get this idea that the key to life is just trying really hard to be good. Let me ask you something. How is that working out for you, this trying really hard to do the right thing? Because it's not working well for me if I can be honest. The harder I try to be like Jesus, the more I realize what a sinner I am. And I fail. But when instead I come to the Lord in humility and I say, Lord, help me. This is where I'm struggling. That's where it bears fruit. So do you have a list, not a list of things that you want God to do for you, but a list of ways you want him to change you? Do you have a list of of sins you keep stumbling into? or bad habits you can't seem to break, or character deficits that you wish could change in you? Do you have that list that you bring before the Father on a regular basis? That is something you should pray about every day. As often as you pray for healing, as often as you pray for guidance, you should pray, Lord, I need to be more humble, so humble me. Lord, I need to become more compassionate, so I'm not just fixated on my own problems. Lord, I need to love the lost more because I can't remember the last time I shared my faith with someone. Lord, I need more courage so I can say the things that need to be said. You need to have that list and you need to bring it before the Father every day. That's what I mean when I say honestly ask God for help. And then there's a third one we need. Look at verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Just, just side note, one of the most encouraging things to me in the Bible is that when Jesus was on earth, the first people who recognized him for who he was were the demons and they were scared to death of him. And there was never a moment when there was a confrontation between Jesus and a demon when it was a fair fight. Every single time Jesus is like, okay, you get out, and the demon's like, okay, I'm gone. Doesn't that make you happy? Doesn't that make you glad that there's, it's not a fair fight between Jesus and the, the forces of evil? Okay, that's a whole nother sermon, but I just had to throw that in. So verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why, would we, why could we not cast him out, cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So the third habit 
we need to form if we want to walk in the dark is remember you still haven't figured it all out. And that's key. We, we think about this story from the perspective of Jesus and his father and his son. But how many of us identify with those nine disciples who failed? How many of us identify with them and the embarrassment they must have felt? Because here's something you may not know, just not too, not too much earlier than this. Uh, just recently in Mark 6, Jesus sent the 12 disciples out to preach and teach and do miracles. He gave them his power. So suddenly these guys who were just blue collar men, who, who weren't educated, who weren't superstars, all of a sudden they had the power. They were a 12-man wrecking crew that just went through Galilee and changed everything and the demons ran from them and the devil tucked his tail and hid. I mean, they must have felt like the kings of the universe. And they must have thought to themselves, this is our new reality. We're no longer just anonymous faces in the crowd. Now we are superstars. Now we can do whatever we want to do. Now we can change the world. And then this father comes with his son and they fail and the power is not there. And when Jesus tells them, okay, you need prayer to, to cast out this kind, that's sort of a clue that maybe the disciples had stopped depending on God and had, had gotten confidence in themselves and their own strength, maybe. But here's what it is for sure. It's a reminder to us that even the disciples couldn't figure Jesus out. And you see it all through the Gospels. It's one of the more humorous uh, uh, subtexts of the Gospels is every time Jesus does something new, the disciples look at each other and are like, who is this guy? We thought we had him figured out, but he's something more than we figured. And that should encourage you that the men who were with him for at least three years, 24-7, saw his face, heard his voice, knew everything there was to know about him, they thought even they couldn't figure him out. He was a mystery. And God is even more so to you and us. You, you and I. We need to understand something that anybody who says, okay, I know the will of God, look at them sideways, okay? They may pastor a big church. They may be somebody who you think of as wise, but if they're wandering around saying, yeah, I know what God's up to, pump the brakes. Maybe, maybe they do, but maybe not because God is, God is higher than us. He's not predictable. He cannot be put in a box. When when I was in seminary, we lived for a while in this big drafty rent house in Fort Worth. And at one point, we had an infestation of mice that was positively biblical. I mean, I expected to wake up and find Pharaoh in my house and be like, yeah, another plague, right? You know, so we had mice everywhere. And they were like, they were like super mice because I, I'm not making this up. Our, our, we couldn't afford an exterminator. We had no money. So my method of dealing with the mouse problem was I carried a broom around. And, and when I saw a mouse, I would chase it and try to whack it. And, and they were faster than me. And one time I was chasing one and he literally leaped from the floor to the kitchen counter. And I was like, I'm done. I, I got nothing. They would chew through the, the kitchen cabinets and eat all our cereal and bread. And so we'd had to put all of our food, literally every crumb of food in the refrigerator, because that was the one place they couldn't get into. And I think they were working on that. Um, so we didn't know what to do. And Carrie at the time worked uh, as an attorney, not a, as an attorney. Yeah, that would have been different. Uh, she was a secretary at a law firm. 
And, and one of the attorneys had this cute little five-year-old girl who one day came up to my wife and said, hey, I heard about your mouse problem, so um, I've got it. Here's what you need to do. You just go get some snakes and you put them in your house and the snakes will eat the mice and, and you'll be fine. And, well, around the same time, we had a, a friend who came to us and said, okay, so this is an old house, right? Yeah, it's very old. Okay, so there's probably cracks all over the place, and mice can slip through the smallest crack. So what you do is you take steel wool, and you stuff it into every crack you can find, and the mice can't chew through that, because if they do, it'll kill them. I'll give you one guess. Which solution do you think we chose? Anybody? It wasn't the snakes, I'll tell you that. And the seal wall actually worked, and I tell you that story to tell you this. So we think we've got it all figured out. Sometimes we just, we have it in our minds, this is what God should do. When the truth is, our solutions sometimes make about as much sense as setting loose a bunch of snakes in your house to deal with a mouse problem. So let's trust the adult. Let's trust the one who knows. Sometimes his ways are not going to make sense to us, and that's okay. That's just proof that we're not God. That's a, that's a useful reminder. You do realize you're not God, right? These songs we've been singing, they were not to you. So trust the one, the adult, the one who knows. And see, the story of Jesus, of course, leads to Jerusalem. He's actually on his way to Jerusalem in this story we read today. So it's just a few weeks later, he stands in Jerusalem before a crowd that shouts for his crucifixion. The disciples thought, hey, the people will rally to Jesus. They do, but they rally to cry out, crucify, crucify. And three days later, two believers leave Jerusalem in deep sadness, walking in darkness. The light has gone out of their lives. The one they thought was the Messiah who would come and, and deliver Israel is now dead. And worse still, dead at the hands of Israel. And they don't know what to do. And they're traveling down this road. They're talking about their problems. There's this stranger who walks up alongside them and, and listens. And finally, he interrupts and says, don't you guys know anything? And he begins to tell them the whole story of the Old Testament, the story they've known their whole lives. But he begins to interject and show how every, every ritual Every hero, every story, every theme, it all points to Jesus and how Jesus would come and give his life for the people and rise again the third day. And the people, those two disciples, their hearts are burning as they're listening to this as all of a sudden everything's starting to make sense. Now they understand. And they finally reach their destination, this little town called Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And they sit down with this stranger and, and they break bread with him. And all of a sudden, their eyes are open and they realize, oh, this is Jesus. He's the one that's been walking with us all this time. And they go running back in the darkness all the way to Jerusalem. And they bang on the door of that upper room where the disciples are hiding in fear. And they tell them, he's alive. We've seen him. He's alive. I just want you to understand that when you're walking in the darkness, the one who's walking alongside of you is the one who knows the way because he is the way and the truth and the life. He's the one who died to save you. He's the one who conquered death three days later. He's the one who will rule the world someday. You are in very good hands, even if you can't see it or feel it.